The Matthew Green Podcast, reframing mental health with me, Matthew Green. What if the problems of the modern world aren't really about power, money, war or religion? What if they're rooted in our individual and collective experience of trauma? I'm on a mission to explore how a deeper understanding of trauma can not only help us to feel better, but point the way to solutions to the challenges threatening our very survival as a species. I've spent years experimenting with alternative approaches to mental health to help with my own periods of depression. And I launched the Matthew Green podcast to bring together the pioneering healers, visionaries, thinkers, and activists I encountered along the way. Through a unique and accessible series of global conversations, I hope this podcast will be a source of inspiration for anyone in search of a deeper understanding of themselves and a clearer view of what's really going on on the global stage. I'm delighted to welcome Justine Huxley, the director of the St. Ethelberger Centre for Reconciliation and Peace in London. A lot of Justine's work is to advance the next generation of young leaders and peacemakers, as well as support everyone to build the kind of spiritual resilience we're going to need to face the many challenges out there in the world today. Justine also has a wonderful new book out called Generation Y, Spirituality and Social Change, which is full of some incredible stories and interviews with young activists, earth defenders, change makers of every kind. The book really deep dives deeply into how these young people are pursuing a very active form of spirituality to push for the kind of systemic change uh, that we obviously need rather urgently at this point in time. So welcome, Justine, to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. Great. Well, th thanks very much for making some time. Before we go to your story and hear more about the work of St. Ethelbergers and the incredible resilience building, transformational work that's taking place there and how that really relates to the individual and as well as the, the kind of wider community societal level. I always like to give a little bit of a, a sense of how we came to be connected. Um, and some of the guests I've had on the show I've known for many years, but we're recently introduced. I heard at the end of last year or, or early this year, I think, was it just before the lockdown started, in what seems like another era about a, a, an interfaith conversation over climate change that was hosted at St. Ethelberger's, which I'd never visited before. So I went along to this address right in the heart of the city near Liverpool Street, walked into this courtyard and saw this extraordinary Bedouin, it's a Bedouin tent, right, that you have set up? Yeah, Bedouin, yeah. Yeah, I, in the context of this incredible church, and we're obviously going to hear the story of that in a few in a few moments um and, and i sat there in the audience and there was a real sense of community uh we had opportunities to do breakout groups to 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 really go deeper than the simple lecture it was an experience as much as it was kind of receiving content and i thought wow you're, this place is really modeling the kind of work that i think we need so much more of um, and of course <laughs> all of that has now shifted online um, just like we are now, uh, but of course the essence of it lives on. Um, so, so Justine, before we go to your story, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the story of St. Ethelbergers? 
Mm, you know, it'd be a pleasure. Um, I tell the story of St. Ethelburg's a lot, and, and I can honestly say I never get bored of telling it because it's such, a, it's such an extraordinary story and because it's such a privilege to work for a, for a place that is founded in these principles. And it's, and it's so great to hear you say that, you know, you walk off the street and you see this, you know, this little courtyard and this Bedouin tent, which takes people by surprise. And then that you felt the sense of community and you felt the sense of connectedness and, and meaning um, that's there. And this attempt to kind of prefigure a different way to live, a different way to come together. So that, that was, I really enjoyed listening to your little reflection and remembering that evening. So. So thank you. Yeah, so um, St. Ethelberga herself, um, our patron saint, she has a very interesting story that's extremely relevant for what's happening at the time because she earned her sainthood uh, responding to a pandemic. So she was a, a seventh century, yeah, she was a seventh century uh, abbess of Barking Abbey. So she was very unusual for the time because she was responsible for both um, nuns and also monks. And I think, I don't understand the details, but I think that was possible in the seventh century in a way that isn't possible now. Mm. And she actually had a lot of religious status. She was in some way almost equivalent to the Archbishop of Canterbury in her status. And she was also quite young in her leadership when she took on um, Barking Abbey. Um, and then the plague arrived at her doorstep. And, you know, myself and my team, you know, we think about this moment a lot for you know, a young woman with not so much experience of life, you know, religious kind of, um, you know, being in this moment where you're watching, you know, the bodies kind of pile up in your local area and like, you know, there's a lot of fear and a lot of distress. And, um, and she could so easily have just closed the doors of her monastery and retreated into prayer, which was what many Benedictines did. Um, but while she was praying for guidance, she actually had a vision and the vision was of a light that was brighter than the sun at noon and this um, vision inspired her to be a healer she knew that god was asking her to go out and to, to be um, a healer with um, the sick and also a chaplain to the dying and so she went out into the community and like opened the monastery doors and kind of gave herself in service at this time you know in a way that we've seen many people do on the front lines and in the nhs and in just key worker professions people having to put aside their own um, self, you know, self-interest in order to serve other people. And she actually died of the plague eventually, wow. which I guess in a way was probably slightly inevitable. Um, and for us, this is a really, really inspiring story of someone who's prepared to put um, their own, put themselves on one side in order to, to serve in the way it's required in the middle of a very challenging and dark time. And, 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 so and she also so inspired by a, a, a mystical experience. It sounds like the, the, the sun brighter the, or the, the, the light brighter than the sun at midday was an extraordinary mystical experience that, that drove this a, a, a incredible courage in the ordinary reality. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point, Matt, because, because I always tend to focus on the fact that she was praying for guidance, that her, you know, her duty was to sort of go inside and to seek direction. And actually the fruits of, of that, the mystical experience, it's like that's not something you can control. It was a gift. But when you've had those experiences, that does give you or any sense of actually being in connection with something bigger than yourself, however that comes to you, can give you tremendous, you know, resilience and power to actually kind of do the work because you know it's not just about you, 
you know, you know you're connected to this much bigger reality and actually that reality is the thing that's important, you know, and that so you can give yourself to that in a different way. So I think it's great that you pick up on that. Yeah. And, and there's a beautiful um, stained glass window, isn't there? Of her with this, as, as I recall, this beautiful, rich, is it blue color you have? There's an extraordinary yeah. image of her looking down into yeah. this ancient yes. church. And it's yeah, been on so, the same site, the same site for a thousand years, right? Uh, there's been a church on the site for 800 years. 800 years so yeah. the, the, the stained glass window that you're talking about is, is actually interesting because it connects with one of our other stories. And, you know, what we've done at St. Ethelberg is, is taken the historical stories like St. Ethelberg's story and the story that I'm about to share with you. And we've used it to, to discern the, the principles which our work is based on. So, for example, the story about Ethelberger, you know, we see in that someone who's prepared to put their values into action in dark times. And like that's one of our principles is to put values into action. And as you were talking about the stained glass window, the fragments on her cloak in that stained glass window were picked out of the rubble after the IRA bomb in 1993 in the city wow. which destroyed the original church. And so, you know, this is a story about how from the middle of destruction, some of the, you know, new life could arise. And, you know, it was down to the vision of, of one person who stood in the rubble and could see that actually from out of this destruction, you know, something new could be bought you know not a church but a center for reconciliation and peace that would look at how you know what the how to, how we can use crisis and conflict as an opportunity to to re-evaluate and to reconfigure um how we do things so our second principle is really about seeking the opportunity in crisis it's extraordinary isn't it to have a place with such a history where the history itself is an embodiment or an almost an archetypal example of the process that you are then trying to catalyze in that container it's quite unusual yeah. i think to have that those fractals at work through time and space supporting the precise kind of transformation that you're trying to facilitate today it's remarkable yeah i think it i mean it was a big step forward for us as a as an organization it was my colleague taro kuzain our coo who um we were working on a funding bid together that was about story and just this sense of like if we can take the principles that we're operating by and like root them in the ground root them in the stories then that gives us this sense of groundedness and it and it actually really helped i mean our values were fairly similar before we linked them to the stories but once we were linking it to the history, it just gave this real sense of, of rootedness and, and clarity and simplicity. So I'd be really interested to know whether other organisations go, go through that same process, you know, and like how, how interesting your history has to be in order for you to do that, or whether we're all capable of doing that, you know, whether we can all go into our own personal histories and like look at our own personal stories and how they give rise to the principles which guide our life. It's a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it happens in families as well. I mean, I was thinking about when I was writing my book on trauma on, on soldiers and their families looking for new ways to heal from the trauma of war. It forced me to confront the role of war and trauma in my own ancestry, in my own family. My grandfather was in the First World War, and it was, like so many families, something that was never spoken about. And it was only when I was writing the book that I thought, well, I should really look into this. You know, I wonder what my granddad actually went through and discovering that he was wounded and his battalion was gassed. And he, I thought, well, wow, you know, I, I never realized that 
what was only just within touching distance of my generation mm. was what kind of impact did that actually have on my family and my personal story? And it never even occurred to me. And it was only after I'd written the book, in fact, probably a couple of years after that, I realized the reason I'd done it. And to, to write it, I had to take a kind of handbrake turn in my career, you know, walk away from the, the safe job and the salary, move back in with my parents, you know. Why was I, some people just couldn't understand why I did it. And I thought, I actually realized I'd done it for my granddad. And I, I never, I only knew that long after it was published. So it, and, and, and how many of those stories are all around us, in our families, in our, on our streets, in our communities, just waiting to be noticed, but just standing there, <laughs> you know, like our ancestors are all around us, just waiting for us to reach out and touch them. It's quite incredible. Um, um, mm. but, but let's talk more about your story. I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love you to, 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 to tell me what took you from a pretty conventional career working as a trader in, in the city to running a Center for Reconciliation and Peace. Yeah, you put it that way, it feels slightly odd. I, I, was, um, I was on the trading floor of an investment bank um, before St. Ethelburgers, but I wouldn't say that I'd actually um, sorted a real career in that field. I mean, I did a PhD in psychology and worked in communications um, for a long time before I was on the trading floor. So there was a, I wouldn't say that I exactly had a career on the trading floor. I was there for five years wondering what on earth I was doing there. <laughs> but um, I think that's probably yeah. what most people on the trading floor are wondering as well, right? <laughs> I have to say I loved it. It was like, you know, it was very out of character. I don't think, you know, my parents were kind of horrified when I, you know, took a, a step into that direction, you know, um, in an environment that's so materialistic and so much about, you know, generate, it's about, you know, greed driven to a large extent. But I have to say, I actually loved being there. I loved the, the speed of the trading floor. I loved the kind of the way it was, you know, it, just this money sort of, flies around the world in these really intricate patterns and I love the kind of house of cards nature of derivatives that is kind of you know so kind of bizarre when you start unpicking it and I love the the relationships it's very much a relationships driven business but I think more than anything else I just love the speed you know I really mm. liked you just slowed my job down like all the different components of it were basically really boring but because it happened at like 200 miles an hour I think we were all on this like adrenaline high the whole time you know and I did I absolutely loved being there it was a lot of fun wow. um but while I was there um 9-11 happened so it was you know it was a while ago um, and that was a very high impact experience for me because we had colleagues who were in the Twin Towers, we had offices in Manhattan, um, and because on the trading floor everyone's got, you know, four TV screens kind of, you know, on their desk and all over the trading floor, we kind of saw the second uh, plane in, in, you know, live in kind of horrendous kind of detail, multiplied times 100 across the trading floor, so it was a very, very high impact experience. And um, uh, I was one of a tiny handful of people that stayed on the trading floor after um, the bank had evacuated all of its offices across Europe, which was what many um, city organisations did, just answering the phone and trying to help colleagues who were in New York get out and kind of field calls from partners who, who were worried about um, their loved ones and stuff. So it was, you know, it was a very um, memorable and uh, you know shocking experience and I think I also felt in the aftermath 
Um, I just had such a clear sense that I wanted to be of service in that scenario that was unfolding globally. And I'd, I'd traveled a lot in Muslim countries and felt I knew Muslim culture um, very well and had a lot of deep respect for it and felt that, you know, maybe I could attempt to be a bridge um, between these two cultures. And I think I was also very aware that, you know, anyone who knew anything at all about conflict transformation and about psychology um, could see 9-11 happening. I mean, it was just, the, all of the dynamics were visible within the field and you could see this resentment building and you know as a psychologist you know that kind of if a voice can't be heard you know terrorism on whatever scale is the response you know terrorists are people whose voices are not being heard and so all the dynamics were there and like anyone who'd been paying attention could have seen it coming um, and, I, and I guess I just felt very uh, interested in that set of dynamics globally um, and to see whether we could build a bridge that would include the the shadow, you know, in how we operate internationally. And so um, I had no idea how to do that. I couldn't, I had no clue who would, um, who would work for that would be doing that kind of work. Um, but strangely, <laughs> I found this job in Sinnethelbergers, which was actually literally two minutes walk from the trading floor that I used to work on. Um, and when I started at Sinnethelbergers, 7-7 had happened by that point. Um, and actually the Bedouin tents that you mentioned earlier was built in response to 7-7 and, and my role when I started there was to bring together people from different um, ethnicities and different religious communities to begin that uh, bridge building. 7-7 being the, the, the bombings, for those who are not familiar, maybe overseas, the, the bombings in London in, seven, was it, it was July 2007? Yeah, exactly. For, or a few years earlier, yeah, the, the 7th of July bombings, um, which were devastating in London, of course. Um, and, and St. Ethelburgers was there to play a role in building reconciliation around that. Yeah, yeah we were a relatively young organisation at that point. And, you know, really the centre came about as a result of um, the IRA um, and, you know, the the bombing campaign that was going on in the 90s you know so really it was a response to that but by the time the center was actually built and open and doing its work then kind of islamic terrorism was really the you know the thing that was um top of everyone's list to respond to and when you were traveling in in the muslim world you found your spiritual path uh in a way that's true yes i mean i was um I was interested in Sufism and I came across Sufism um, through reading actually in, in this country and kind of I, I wanted to, at that time Sufis were very um, hidden um, and you know I think believe you could actually be married to a Sufi and your partner and not actually know you were one because Sufism mm. was um, uh, you know considered considered unorthodox in a lot of Muslim countries and, and you know it wasn't okay to be a Sufi so it's been a very hidden tradition um, and you know I came across it and couldn't find Sufis in the UK so the only way I could do it was actually by traveling to different countries so I kind of made a pilgrimage across North Africa and Turkey and India um, going to Sufi shrines and kind of sitting at the feet of different Sufi masters across the world so that was a very transformative time for me. And how do you think that experience fed into your work at St. Ethelburgers? And I, I, I should add, it's an interesting synchronicity because the last guest that we recorded is a Sufi sheikh, Sheikh Fadlallah Heri, who he's a fifth generation 
Sufi master from Karbala in Iraq, <laughs> who yes, I got I to know. Oh, yeah. you know him? Well, he He's was your, he was the guest just before you. So I, rec I recorded an hour with him uh, last week and I will obviously broadcast that. Although it, it, it was different from all these other podcasts in the series because I was essentially his guest because the, the Sufis around him decided it would be a good idea to record this live with all his followers tuning in. So it turned into, it was a live event, <laughs> which we'll also play later, but it was a great conversation. And so I was asking him, and I, I, I'd like you to maybe glance at the same question. Um, I was asking him about the role of the mystical experience on the spiritual path. And we, we spoke about St. Ethelberger's vision of a sun, a, a light brighter than the sun at midday, this mind-blowing expanded state of awareness that clearly informed her work in the world, incredible work in the world. And I, I was asking Sheikh Falallah, is it, do we need to have that experience? You know, we can get very caught up in chasing that kind of experience or feeling like if we haven't had some kind of mind-blowing awakening, we're missing out. And, well, I'll leave people to tune into that podcast. And the answer he gave was yes and no. <laughs> so yes and no. <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave him to speak for himself on that. I'm curious what, what you think about the, the role of those expanded states of awareness, whether we want to call them a mystical experience or um, non-ordinary state of consciousness. Was that part of your path? And, and, and is, it, is it something that, that we should be chasing? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I love that. And what an honor to be following Sheikh Fadalas. <laughs> I don't know whether my answer will like match. <laughs> but um, I, think it's a, I think it's a really great question. And I think that, the, um, you know, the direction I get drawn in instantly when you ask that question it is the is the experience of oneness because I think many 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 people I would go as far as to say actually most people have had experiences of the connectedness of all life and like you know you can have that in meditation with some amazing light and you know I don't know angels or whatever um, but you can also have it in life and it's present in life and I think you know many people particularly when they're younger have an experience in nature you know where the mm. beauty and the connectedness of nature um, you know affect you and you go into this slightly altered state of consciousness and and you know you're present in 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 something else you know things look the way they normally look but you can also see something else behind appearances and you know there's many different languages you could use to describe that but i think many people have had that experience of just sitting in nature and experiencing this oneness whether it comes as a sense of peace or a sense of beauty or a sense of interconnectedness or of something more mysterious and powerful than that and i think is i think it's a really important experience for our times because within that experience is the blueprint for a different way of life um, that connects us to that um the mystery and the magic behind life but also the interconnectedness of life so that i think there's a sort of you know there's a stamp somewhere in those experiences whether they're you know and i think you know those experiences can take so many forms it can be like you're in a you know you're at glastonbury listening to kind of, you know some amazing musicians and you have this moment of feeling profoundly connected with all of the people and the music and the clouds in the sky and you know it, or it can come just drinking tea with a friend you know and there's a moment of like empathy and connectedness and like that all of those experiences are like imprints for something that show us 
how we can live in a way that's connected um, and that recognizes the sacredness of life, you know, whatever language you use for it. And I think, I think there's a real need to take those mystical experiences away from, well, not take them away, but just realize that they belong to all of life. They don't just belong to religion. So I'd love to know what your answer to that question is. Well, it's so beautifully put. And I, I love this idea that these experiences, and as you say, they can come in so many different forms. They can come at a moment of childbirth, or they can come through ingesting a large quantity of psychedelic drugs. <laughs> I mean, that can also that can also loosen the cap a bit, you know, at least temporarily. Or they can come through, as you say, meditation. You know, one of I think one of the big shifts I went through was doing a vipassana retreat in northern India. This is back now, I think, in 2011, after I'd gone through quite a severe period of depression and I was really looking, I knew I wasn't right. I knew I needed to find a, 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 he, a healing of some kind. And the Vipassana, although I, I wouldn't say that I had like a St. Ethelberger style opening, something shifted over the course of the 10 days of sitting in silence that did make me see everything differently. And I have been different ever since. And it, I would say that it has given me more courage in some ways to follow my own path or my own calling, sometimes against the grain, uh, other times not. Because I think, and this is maybe another theme where you, you could respond to, it, it can be, it, it's very difficult when we enter these realms because it, it's so difficult to not alienate people who may, or it's so difficult to find the language that makes this an inclusive conversation. Because for some people, just it just sounds so remote and i would have been in that camp until 10 years ago now it feels very natural to be talking about <laughs> spirituality and mystical awakenings and so forth and i i, I in fact i love talking about nothing more <laughs> but and yet it's it, there's such a danger that it becomes a kind of um becomes uh it, well, let me turn it around. How, do, how does that become something inclusive? And in a sense, isn't that what St. Ethelbergers is all about? It's almost taking that inspiration and I, to use a sort of slightly clunky word, almost operationalizing it. It's doing something very real in the community with that. Maybe you could respond to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my brain's going in two different directions at once. So I, I have to take one of them and then come back to the <laughs> and Ethelbergers, if that's okay. But I, I was just, reflect, just reflecting on what you were saying. I mean, a Vipassana retreat is quite a big dramatic thing. It's like you, you take yourself out of your normal patterns and your normal way of life and you put yourself into this very disciplined, empty space where you're doing complete awareness on, you know, awareness in meditation, awareness in walking, you know, this tremendous, and it's a very powerful thing to do. And if you're gonna do it for 10 days, that's like a big experience. You know, but actually, if you break down what it is, is it's just extracting yourself from the kind of machinery of our everyday life and our conditioning and our normal patterns. It's giving yourself a little bit of space and it's kind of putting you in a different relationship often with nature, because quite often when you do a Vipassana retreat, you're doing it somewhere nice in the woods. And I feel like, you know, we, we're all capable of doing that every day. And, you know, I have a practice that's not related to my Sufi tradition, but, you know, in the morning, 
um, I go into the garden in the winter, I try to time it for before dawn so that I catch that moment where the night is turning to day. And I just do these 20 minutes of a Qigong practice. And I'm really, it's not, it's, you know, it's not, for me in a way, it's just an opportunity to be outside at that moment of dawn, you know, when, when the world is still fresh and being reborn. And at the end of, you know, just 20 minutes of doing this breathing and these simple movements, and I kind of, you know, I thank that at the end of it, I kind of bow to the, you know, to the natural world and I bow to my teachers. And I, in that bowing, I kind of notice that there is a, there's a kind of stepping back of myself. It's like, you know, I kind of, I bow to the natural world. It's like I put myself into the background. And suddenly I come into this different relationship. It's like feeling that up until that moment, there's me at the center of things. And then when I do that bow, it's like I come back into the circle of life, into right relationship with everything else. And I'm this kind of one interconnected component with everything else. And I find this peace comes over me, you know, that's just, and it's so nourishing and so um, fortifying and kind of gives me this different relationship with life. And that's just like 20 minutes of my day, you know? And so I feel like the shift that you're talking about, you know, actually we should be building that into how we practice and how we live and like whatever our profession is, you know, we need to be building moments of that in because, and I do think that model of, you know, there's something about being your monk in the cave up the mountain that whilst that still has a place and sometimes at transitional moments in our life or like once a year or something, we still need that kind of complete removal. But actually we're living in a world where there's so much need and like we, we need to be weaving those moments through everything that we do so that that consciousness permeates, you know, all of the decisions in our life and how we operate. And we're kind of stuck in this, you know, machine of extractive consumerism that just goes round and round and round. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time in spiritual practice and I'm very committed to my tradition. And yet I still feel myself the end of lockdown, everything's picking up. I feel myself being sucked back into this machine and it's hard to resist, you know, it's really hard to resist. And I think another thing that's just coming to me as you're talking is community, because you've, we've been talking a little bit about practice, which is in some ways quite individual. You've been talking about your morning practice, which is an individual practice. And even the Vipassana, although it's done in a group, it's absolutely internalized because you're not even supposed to make eye contact with anyone in the group during those 10 days. So it's a very individual uh, focus. And yet I'm finding more and more that the community dimension of this work is so uplifting and so powerful it's almost like having training wheels for the practice and i was running a group or co-facilitating a group um i say it sounds very grand <laughs> i mean it was really just a zoom group that was sprang up during the lockdown which started with a small group of colleagues and another guest on our podcast jiwa woodbury who is a longtime tibetan Buddhist practitioner and eco-psychologist who has done written a lot about climate and trauma and climate trauma and he has a, a incredible depth of wisdom and a very strong spiritual container to be able to kind of sit with what's actually happening in the world and he he led this really uh, along with another another guest uh, Dallas McGudgel uh, sorry Dallas Gudgel who is a, a Dakota um, Native American elder leader who who also sat with us it was an incredible gathering globally 
with some some journalists, some others, colleagues, some friends, and we'd meet each Friday. And and that the just meeting in a in a kind of sacred container, lightly held, was itself a form of practice that that didn't involve even that much self discipline. Just turning up actually had a very, I think, transformative effect. And I'd I'd love to hear you reflect a little more then on, on, on St. Ethelbergers and, and what you're bringing forward mm-hmm. and what you're, what the sort of containers that you're creating and, and the changes that you're seeing as a result. Yeah, lovely. I loved hearing about that, that conversation, that sounds, because it's such a simple thing. And yeah. yet, as you say, the impact of it is, is, is huge in a way because you have a different experience of how to relate to other people and you sense this other thing that's present when people come yes. together with that intention and those connections are there something else is there with you we, we, we create a shared field of awareness and a kind of a, a coherence and this is what thomas hubble talked about in, in an earlier podcast he, he he is very uh i think really at the cutting edge of talking about or finding the language to articulate what happens when this group intelligence is is allowed to emerge and in in a strange way i'm not saying that zoom is a substitute for in-person meetings but zoom and online meetings i think can be incredibly powerful for this in a way that's almost counterintuitive oh it's all on a laptop screen we're all so disconnected but i think it's the opposite i think there's something about the equality even It, it strips away a lot of the status markers or body language or kind of all sorts of stuff that can get in the way is kind of democratized when you're all sitting in a box <laughs> and you have to listen to each other and you don't have to read a cue in terms of when to speak it's almost kind of more structured and i think that there's something inadvertently perhaps that really can help that coherence to to do its work because we, we i used to come away from those friday night zooms feeling oh i feel great i i, I really miss them now um and I suspect that your work at St. Ethelberger's is, is very similar. Yeah, I mean, I, I to- totally agree with you. I really think there's something very interesting in the way meeting online reconfigures how we relate. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. I could talk about that for a long time. I think that's really fascinating. But to just answer your question about St. Ethelberger's, I mean, I guess one way you could describe what we're doing. I mean, our mission statement is is that we're about building community resilience for times of ecological and social emergency. Um, and we're holding a vision for a world that's that's rooted in inter, interbeing, interdependence and compassion. And I guess you could say that what we do is, you know, we're a space for people to come together um, and to come together in a new configuration. So like, how do we meet where that sense of interconnectedness and that organic non-hierarchical um, life force is present? Um, and you ask the question, how do we make um, spirituality or spiritual experience inclusive? How do we kind of bring that together? And that is, you know, it's a challenging thing, I think in some ways, because there are so many different languages to describe what we're pointing towards. But I do think the language of interconnectedness, interdependence, interbeing is really fundamental. And I think, you know, when we work with um, the younger generation, um, the, the language that everyone seems they can sign up to, whatever religious tradition or absence of religious tradition they're involved in, is just this language of interconnectedness, that this is about service to something bigger than ourselves, and it's about um, connectedness with each other. So, you know, St. Ethelberg is, is doing, 
many different things. I mean, there's many different ways you could describe it, but definitely bringing people together in these new configurations where we can taste that organic, natural relationship between each other in this non-hierarchical way and taste the life force, the regenerative life force that is present within that. And also work with disagreements in that way. How can we get away from this dualistic notion of like conflict as being about you know this versus that when actually most conflicts are much more complex than that there's many more actors in the field and that actually you can you can constellate a conversation about difference and disagreement where that interconnectedness is present and where those differences can be held within this kind of web of relationships in a way that just blows you know just blows out of the water the idea it's about this versus that and i guess that you know that plugs into a whole um, narrative about the change in our worldview, you know, that we're coming from thousands of years of, a, of history where we've been rooted in, in, a, in a worldview that is about separation, that separated heaven from earth, that separated black from white, that separated male from female, um, and has raised one up and denigrated the other and exploited it and extracted from it and actually that you know it's that mindset that worldview which is behind so many of the challenges that we're facing today and how we sort of shift into that different way of seeing things where we recognize that connectedness and we re recognize the sacredness and the the mystery that's behind it so you know St. Ethelberg's is, is really in this place where we're particularly looking at um climate breakdown, really the understanding that, um, you know, actually climate breakdown is much further along than most of our politicians or spokespeople are able to really be honest about, um, and that there is a real need to, to face that reality. And that takes courage, it takes community, it takes psychological and spiritual strength to do that, to go past the the denial which is just a sort of natural response to something that is overwhelming and huge and very frightening on some levels how do we go past that to really face the reality of what's going on and of course the pandemic is part, part of that reality and i think there are people out there that don't realize that because our politicians are not making that those connections explicit and i think it's really important that people know the pandemic is a result of a world that's ecologically out of balance and it is the beginning of something that is the foretaste of an yeah. era of collapse where the yeah. you know we're going to be seeing more and more of this we're entering into what some people are calling that you know an age of the great dying and mm -hmm. it's like you know we need we need resilience to face that so mm -hmm. you know St. Ethelberg's is about facing that reality about using different ways of making community and different embodied techniques and using our imagination in some way to walk into that future and really face some of the things that will be happening in our lifetime and our children's lifetime and and secondly really understanding the need to, to stand and to act in solidarity with people from all backgrounds and all places in the world because of course this collapse is you know very far advanced in some countries in the global mm. south like Honduras for example or you know whereas um, we in the UK you know are in a place of relative safety at the moment mm. although we have our own climate refugees you know there are people that are having to relocate because of sea level rises by the coast you know yeah. so it's here and it's coming so so we're in the business of facing reality looking at the need to to stand in solidarity and act in solidarity with people who are already on the front lines of that collapse and to understand how 
how this ecological destruction fits together with racial in injustice in particular, that it's the same system of separation and extraction that is behind all of the all of colonialism and all of the, the damage that is perpetrated on people of colour on a daily basis and that is woven through every aspect of our society, that that and the thing that is causing the environmental collapse are the same thing. Um, so acting in solidarity and then really what we what we want to do with that awareness is to build community resilience build resilience within ourselves build resilience within communities um, and act together and, um, and i think there's an important sorry matt there's an important element in addition to the community resilience which is about holding a vision because when when you do understand how bad the situation is you know, then, then you realise you're not working for your lifetime anymore. You're not working for your children's lifetime or your grandchildren's lifetime. But we have, we're holding a vision that needs to be handed down to generations like a baton until the point where this earth can regenerate. And I think there's something, you know, that's a big shift in thinking. We have to shift our time frames enormously to be thinking about, you know, when the world that we want to see, the world that we want to see regenerated, when that really takes roots, you know, while and there could be a lot more suffering before we get there. But I also think there's tremendous strength in that. And I find that, you know, when I'm conscious myself of, you know, those generations I'm working for, it gives me a freedom from self-centeredness and a freedom from kind of my own fear and need to protect myself and my immediate loved ones, because I know that's actually not what it's about. Anyone who's an activist now has to be working for seven generations ahead. And I think there's this tremendous strength in that approach. That's a, a, a beautiful telling of that concept. I hadn't realized the work I mean, I signed up for the deep adaptation online course with some with some trepidation, <laughs> knowing knowing Jim Bendel and his work. I know that it's not going to be a, a picnic, but I thought, well, actually, you know, it's time to do this work in a deeper way, really dive into it and give myself that opportunity to confront this, especially because I write up. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm paid a salary every month to write about climate change. So I feel like I should be doing that kind of inner work around it as well. Um, and there's so many ways to, to, to jump off from that. But to, to come back to your point about being, I think it was Gail Bradbrook, I remember one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, who I've heard speak many times, and she was saying, it's about being a good ancestor. And that's something really, um, there's something new for me in what you just said, and very powerful, this idea that we can look at the, the graphs and the charts and the parts per million and all of the data and go wow you know it's over <laughs> and that's a route to despair and out of that despair can grow something new in this case okay well it may be over for a while or certainly life as we know it might be over but that doesn't mean that we can't hold a vision and as you say pass it down and and but in the, in the full knowledge that it may not come to fruition for many generations hence and it connects connects a little bit with the earlier part of the conversation where we were talking about the ancestors and acknowledging those ancestors who's, who's, who have already been. Because ultimately, we're all sitting here with full of the DNA that has gone through eons of, of struggle <laughs> to bring us to this moment where I, we're able to chat to each other over Zoom. So, so there's bringing some of these, these bigger kind of big, big, big concepts in, I think can be, there's real medicine in that for that otherwise that despair or overwhelm that can be kind of paralyzing actually if, if it isn't mm -hmm. if it isn't 
confronted in an in a way in a compassionate way with these and and uh, with resources such as this that that can really sustain us so i mean i've gone from being i'm still i still have a sense of trepidation but i also feel a little glimmer that actually i may come away from my four-day immersion <laughs> rejuvenated as well as <laughs> terrified so yeah well i think you know i think you're right to feel that way you know because because i think we spend a lot of our lives you know just trying to put a little bit of distance between us and those scientific facts and the news reports, which are terrifying. And I think it, it does take an act of commitment to go, okay, I'm going to properly look at that. I'm going to properly imagine, you know, if these things continue unchecked, you know, this is what may be unfolding in our future. And it, it takes psychological and spiritual strength to do that. And yeah. as well, you know, our kind of story with that was that when Jen Bendel, um, published or uh, peer, peer published his um, paper deep adaptation um, we took that paper as a team and kind of went into retreat together to kind of digest the contents of it and to look at you know to look at the kinds of things that we think may be happening in two years five years ten years fifty years and to say okay so what does you know what is the purpose of St Ethelberger's if this is what we're looking at and I think this you know one of Jem's questions which I felt very um, guided by um, in that period of our uh, work was the question what no longer makes sense and I think it's a really important question to be asking and I you know I think there's so many things that all of us are doing in our lives that actually you know no longer really make sense and so you know if we can <laughs> ask that question yeah. and then yeah yeah and then say, well how do we repurpose ourselves for the reality that is really there and you know as actually one of the one of the um, people who attended our courses said afterwards i thought this really summed it up he said um he said the monster that you look in the eye is uh somehow easier to handle than the monster that's hidden behind the wardrobe and i think that's you know that's what we're attempting to do when we talk about facing reality or doing deep adaptation is to pull the monster out from behind the wardrobe and have a proper look straight in the eye and then ask okay so how do we repurpose ourselves for this you know slightly monstrous reality uh, yes and doing it in community is so important isn't it because and, and this is something i think I think maybe in the sort of personal development world is sometimes missing in that I know that when I started the very, very much the books I was reading and the, even some of the things I was doing were very individual. They're very, it's very much about you and your practice and your changes and how you're evolving and which is, which is part of the story, but having in more recent years had more occasion to be in community, whether it be, for example, I, I, every couple of times a year if possible i try to go to oxfordshire sweat lodge which is a sweat lodge ceremony that's been going since about 2000 handed down from a lineage in canada and it's beautifully held and it's such a sacred healing space and that was where i've really confronted some parts of myself in that lodge in the heat and the darkness and the with the fire or the the hot rocks and it's it's a community. And, and I, I remember the first time I arrived on that land, it's just this beautiful spot on a little shallow, almost a valley with a meadow and a wood. And I just started crying as soon as I stepped on the land where the lodge was held. And I could feel something in the, in the space that was just ready to bring anything up out of me that needed to be looked at and cleared away. Um, but you can't do a sweat lodge on your own. Well, I don't think you can. <laughs> I, don't, I think the whole point of it is, is that it's a group endeavor. Um, and 
finding ways to have those shared encounters with the shadow, as I would think of that mod. I would think, I mean, we can use different analogies, but I often think of it. I often like, I like the, I like the language of shadow. I think it's really helpful. And I can think of shadows large and small in my own life, which I still haven't really looked at. I can still think of the emails I haven't opened. <laughs> you know on a very minor level um so you know when you've got things like that that haven't been nailed down the prospects of societal collapse is obviously somewhat daunting and probably yeah. best addressed in a group <laughs> absolutely absolutely but i think you're putting you're putting your finger on something that's really important because i think in somewhere over the last few generations you know our spirituality has been you know poisoned by this you know consumerism that's that's got in there and that's mm. turned our spirituality into this very self-centered you know commercial endeavor and and i think it's really really important that we take it out of that space and into somewhere different and i think for me the thing that solves that is is knowing that you know your personal story you know what you've had to overcome in in your lifetime is part of a web of yeah. you know stories that belong to the earth itself and it's like yes it's your story but we're also all interconnected and we're all living at this point in time and if we can take our own stories and kind of understand where those stories fit together with the story of what's you know this much bigger story of what's happening to humanity and to our beautiful planet earth at this time then that releases us from that self-centeredness and we can we can still do the work on ourselves but we can do it within this much larger context yeah. where we recognize that we're a reflection of that and i think if and then if we're offering our own healing work and we're offering our own stories in service to that whole then you know then we're not in danger of being self-centered and of like having to choose between either we're activists or we're working on our own healing and of course we you know we have to do the two because the inner and outer are reflected and if we do activism from a place of being traumatized and unhealed ourselves, or in a place of separation in our own consciousness not having integrated our own shadow or looked at where you know we have these internal hierarchies and separation going on within us you know we can't we can't affect change in the world so it's like that personal healing and the bigger healing absolutely goes together and i think what you're saying is just really accurate that when we do it in community and we do it in community that's in service to that bigger picture you know then then something can actually happen you know we're not just kind of up our own asses you know <laughs> About Very well own. put. <laughs> well, <laughs> well on, on that, I mean, this brings us really nicely to your book, Generation Y, Spirituality and Social Change, which contains stories of young people who would be presumably not just nodding along in agreement. They probably wouldn't have time to be sitting here listening to us because they're already out there doing this stuff. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the book and maybe some of the people in it. Sure, yeah. And maybe I can tell you how the book came about. Yeah, in the first yeah. Um, in the work at St. Ethelberger's, um, I had uh, very many younger colleagues who um, came to kind of participate in the work. And I was so conscious of something different being present in those groups where, where young people were leading themselves, you know, where it was kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, work. And that there was this, you know, I just noticed that within the younger generation, it's not, I don't think it's across the whole board, to be honest, but, you know, within some members of the younger generation, there's this very powerful regenerative quality that um, to me, it used to feel like, 
I don't know, a little bit like champagne, just like these bubbles of this incredibly pure, <laughs> uh, sparkly thing that was somehow connected, you know, with the earth. And, you know, I noticed how young people kind of operated with each other and the kind of, the, you know, I think, I think Charles Eisenstein put it really well. He just said the younger generation are standing much more firmly in the story of interbeing. And I think, you know, in my own generation, I've been so conscious of being kind of halfway between two paradigms and feeling like I've got the old paradigm in me and I'm trying really hard to decolonize myself and take that out, you know, and I've also got the new paradigm in me. I can feel it. I know when it's, you know, I know I can facilitate spaces that have that quality and, and, you know, I know I can sense where that regeneration is coming from. So I feel like I have both of these things in me. And so, and I saw how much, um, how much got lost with the younger generation, how the older generation often didn't see that. They didn't recognize that there was something actually fundamentally different. You know, there's the energy of youth for sure, but a lot of the older people that I was working with were not recognizing that it was actually something very special within the younger generation, which I think is belongs to life recreating itself. It belongs to our future and it's the earth kind of giving it is the earth recreating itself through these young people and so I wanted to make that visible and so you know I started this business of interviewing and collecting stories from the younger generation and I was very sad that my publisher wanted the book to be called Generation Y because there's actually lots of Generation Z people in there as well and there's also older generation people with messages of support because I wanted to kind of have you know all the generations present in that so it's not just generation what you know why at all and i think there's some incredible people like greta Thunberg, for example is very much in the in the z generation as you know publishers in their titles it's an eternal problem but it's a wonderful book with some amazingly nourishing stories in there i mean given what we've been talking about community we've been talking about mysticism we've talked about activism we've talked about reconciliation and and our own transformation. There's obviously tons of different stories we could pick up from the book, but I wonder if there's any one that just springs to you now that you'd like to tell us, a particular person that you wrote about that you'd like to tell us a bit more about. I think, I mean, they, they all reflect different aspects of that change. And I think, um, you know, it's hard to pull one out because some of them were kind of really living spirituality and action together in a way that, you know, they weren't bringing spirituality into action. Their, their activism is their spirituality, which is a very different thing. You know, I was very inspired by that. Some of them are kind of reinventing traditions in a new way, like outside of hierarchy and kind of using different, you know, tech and social media to kind of change the way we do spiritual community. You know, some of them are, are kind of deeply involved in earth activism, like Shuteskat Martinez, who's, who's, um, was instrumental in this uh, lawsuit that was um, uh, taken against Barack Obama's um, administration for the kind of destruction of the earth. You know, amazing piece of work that had activists that were like 12 years old kind of- Yes, that was the, the, the Juliana versus United States case, um, which yeah, was suing the federal government for essentially perpetuating an economic system that's going to kill them because of the amount of CO2 and the greenhouse gases that it's producing. Um, and it's funny you mention it because I actually was writing about this case only a few days ago. Um, and I mean, sadly, in January, it hit a bit of a wall because the federal circuit court said that it was a matter for the, not for the judiciary, but for the executive or the legislature. In other words, don't trouble us with the collapse of the, the biosphere. 
But they, they may well appeal that and that we'll see more and more litigation like that. And we're seeing more and more young people in the driving seat. I mean, there's lots of cases around the world now of young people who are initiating these proceedings. I was talking to a guy in um, Portland, Oregon, who just yesterday, who's fighting a new pipeline there that has just been approved by the Trump administration. And he's been, he's in his early twenties. He was, he's been involved, he's been fighting against that pipeline since he was a child. So 16 years that he's been involved, ever since the beginning. And it's extraordinary. And I think, I mean, and I, we obviously don't wanna be sitting here, you know, I'm north side of 40, I don't mind admitting it, <laughs> assuming that the young people are gonna come and clear up the mess, right? And yet there is something real that is different and evolutionary. And I, I'm just gonna, if, you, if I may just give the, 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 the listeners a, a little line from the introduction to your book, because I think it, it captures what you were saying a moment ago really well. You write, I've been both inspired and challenged by millennial thinking. Through their eyes, I've seen a piece of the future. What has moved me more than anything else has been witnessing the very particular spark that some young people carry within them, a regenerative quality. Llewellyn Vaughan Lee described it to me as, described it to me, to me as life recreating itself. This book is a testament to that spark, to those who are putting spiritual values into action, reuniting the sacred and the mundane, and evolving new ways of doing and being. So it, it, there is something new here. It's, it's new. <laughs> it, it's definitely new. And I think that, you know, the challenge is that many of the people in, in positions of power and responsibility, you know, actually it's invisible to them. And, you know, I feel very strongly that actually one thing that really needs to happen is, is to create intergeneral, intergenerational spaces where that energy can be properly curated because it gets squashed in a lot of more hierarchical situations where there's older people that don't recognize what's there, that energy can get squashed. And it's like, you know, and, I, and I've seen that happen. I've also seen myself do it. You know, I know mm. how um, subtle that energy is and how much space it needs to be given but I feel like you know I was doing last week um, Pups and Ethelbergers I run a series called Inner Sanctum which is about bringing it's about using a uh, restorative justice model to bring together very diverse groups of people and have a conversation about kind of you know what's happening with our world and um, I tried to curate a conversation on intergenerational justice where there were people there was a young teenage climate activist there were um, people in their 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s power holders and younger activists from a whole range of different political spectrums and ethnic and faith backgrounds and tried to have a conversation about you know how, how can the generations actually be supporting each other properly how can we kind of have a situation of justice around this and um you know my sense is that for some of the um older people present they, you know, they've not experienced that kind of space before. They've not been taken into an environment where every voice has equal status and where you can kind of create this web of organic relationships rather than have people telling each other what to do. Um, and, I, you know, I really do feel that sort of, you know, the power holders need to be uh, listening and making space and really appreciating what it is that the younger generation are bringing. And, you know, I also feel there's, you know, just sort of uh, scrolling backwards a little bit into the wider landscape that you know St Ethelberg is, is very aware that you know if we're to regenerate 
our earth, which is, you know, a potentially seven generation project, um, you know, the younger generation are creating these spaces where there is this light, where there is this regeneration, where people are coming together in different ways and doing things in different ways and where there's this different relationship with the land. And like, to my mind, those small places, like there is many, there's millions of them all over the planet, these little places where this light and this regenerative um, yes. quality is present. And those things are not gonna shift the collective. I, I, I think the time for that, you know, systemic sh collective shifting moments i think we've moved past that i can't mm. see that happening but we have to like uh support those places and all of those places of course are linked up they know each other and not yeah. you know the, the world those places of light are there and so it's really you know i feel there's something about really protecting those places and kind of giving space that you know prevents the kind of destructive quality of um the system that we're within kind of destroying those places of regeneration. Wow. I'm getting goosebumps as you say that I was thinking of when I went uh, the very first time I went to the sweat lodge ceremony in Oxfordshire and the, 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 the leader of the lodge was saying we are part of, we're one of small groups springing up all over the planet now who are doing exactly what you're saying. These light sets, light sort of beacons almost, but yet, but yet almost, only if you have eyes to see them, <laughs> right? They're not obvious. It's a kind of parallel mycelium that is powerful, but as you say, it may not be enough to, to shift the, the system, and yet it is building something new and different and in and around it, almost infiltrating in some ways. And I think, I think we should, as, as journalists, I feel like we should be writing about that. Like, it's still, I run up all the time against this thing of, well, that's interesting, but if it's only a small project or it's only a few num small number of people, it's not a story, you know, until it's some big institution that's doing something, it's not oh, considered it's, to I'm be so, important. I'm so with you on that, Matthew. I'm so with you. It's just kind it, of... It's like, know, what? <laughs> yeah, because there is this landscape of horrific things happening, you know, all the elephants dying in Botswana. Yeah this last week there's you know the pandemic I and mean, it's just horrific stuff happening and like of course the mainstream media goes after reporting those things and those things are going to carry on and they're going to get worse but it's like where it and like you said they're kind of small initiatives so it's hard to report yeah. on them but i think it's absolutely essential that we make them visible that people see that actually they're there you know yeah and the, I think the alternatives you know, exist I, I yeah as being about planting seeds you know rather than building something because you know we're planting seeds that might lie dormant for yeah. a long time you know they're there they're alive but yeah. they won't, won't be able to kind of take properly grow roots and become a new culture potentially mm. for many generations so i kind of see mm. it as like there are these little pods of light or seeds of light that are being planted all over the earth and we have to be conscious of them and, and to nurture them and to protect them and to you know be aware that 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 is the that will be the dna of the future i i'm gonna say something which may be horrendously misquoting <laughs> tibetan buddhism so i'm going to apologize in advance if i mangle this completely but i i was reading paul levy's book the quantum revelation which is an amazing book about quantum physics and what it you know how it can just flip your mind and way of being inside out and he talks about in tibetan buddhism this tradition that there are certain almost like almost like time capsules buried in the collective consciousness that at the right moment in history open and that quantum physics was one of those 
kind of capsules that was ready to pop in like the early 20th century. And we're still assimilating the findings of quantum physics. And we haven't even really begun to assimilate them. And, 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 and in a sense, the quantum worldview is the world of interbeing that we've been talking about. It is, it is the science that shows the story of separation is just wrong. It's not even just that destructive. It's just false, <laughs> just objectively false, because there is no objectivity. So, so, so and, and where I was going with that, I can't quite remember, but I, it, it somehow resonates with this idea that these seeds can be planted through time that can have their moment to, to, to blossom or to sprout. And that's, and I, I, it brings me back to something that often comes back to me. And again, it goes, it, it relates back to my book or, or the, the, the sort of odyssey I had around soldiers and trauma. I went to see, I, I got to know a theater company called Theater of War. I don't know if you ever come across them. It's a, Brian Dores is a New York theater director, classicist, amazing amazing guy who during the Iraq war was reading reports of these soldiers coming back in America with terrible psychological injuries with no treatment for them really terrible crumbling facilities at the VA which were hopeless and he decided you know he'd been translating Sophocles Ajax the war poems of the Greeks and he thought there's something here for these guys and women as well and so he started putting on scenes from at first Sophocles Ajax for troops and that was the way of creating a space for the conversation because he could have the officers and the trigger pullers <laughs> the, the 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 ratings the rank and file in the same theater or the same mess hall where he'd have actors reading the scenes where Sophocles comes back from war and becomes completely unglued and starts slaughtering goats and animals and then eventually kills himself after just going berserk basically and his wife is pleading with him to kind of come to his senses and he, he can't do it and I saw him put this play on at I've seen him a couple of times once was at the headquarters of a parachute regiment in Colchester where they had the officers and the officers and the NCOs. So they didn't invite what they call the Toms, i.e. The, the lads, because they were like, mm, I'm not sure yet, you know. We'll just test it with the officers and the NCOs. And it was incredible because they created this space. There must have been a hundred of these guys where they did the scenes and you could see they were, because Brian has translated it so clearly that it can be followed very easily. Even I can follow it, you know. <laughs> and at the end of it, this incredible performance, the... CO, the commanding officer, stepped forward and talked about how when he came back from Afghanistan, he was full of anger and he couldn't control his anger. And he actually had a wife who's a clinical psychologist. And my partner's a clinical psychologist. So I could relate to the, the value of having an in-house shrink, right? But it was extraordinary to see him open up and get, then in turn give space for the others to open up. And it seemed to me to model the kind of approach that we've been talking about in the military environment where you feel that that's the last place on earth that it's going to happen and yet it was happened beautifully and the other place mm -hmm. i saw it was in a prison in scotland where they put on scenes from prometheus where you know the god chained to a rock having his <laughs> entrails pecked out by an eagle every 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 morning and he said something there brian said you're you can be alone but you're not alone across time because 
these legends, these myths, these plays are 2,000 plus years old, and yet they're speaking to you right now. And I love that idea that you're not alone across time. And it, it brings us back to our ancestors and our descendants mm -hmm. and the idea that, and, and it brings us back to the quantum because there is no time. It's all in the mind. It will, it's all an aspect of our consciousness anyway. And, and mm -hmm. as soon as we start to enter these realms, we find so many new possibilities, so many, so much, so much, I would say, nourishment that, that mm -hmm. does allow us then to go forward and meet these crises that, as you say, are coming down the track. Um, yeah. Sorry, I hadn't I, mean to go on such a long soliloquy no, towards the end I, of the show. I was nodding so hard I had to take my earrings off. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's the effect I try to, that, that's, that shows the podcast has worked when earrings have to be removed. That, that's, that's the moment, of, <laughs> that's, that's where we've hit liftoff. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're about to close, obviously, we're just, just a few more minutes left, but I, I just, I'd, love, I'd love to hear any final reflections from you, Justine, and on anything, anything else you think needs yeah. to come forward or anything else that wants to be said. Yeah, I kind of feel like where, where we were coming to with your reflection around that is a really important gathering together of the themes that I think that you and I have been touching into in, in this hour. And I think there's something about, you know, can we move forward into this era of transition through collapse you know with the consciousness of all of our ancestors with the consciousness of the you know the archetypes that kind of act through those stories with going as far back in time as it takes for us to go to this pristine place of source where the mm. untouched the untouched life force regenerates itself so can we have that kind of backward you know can we be connected to that flow of history and can we be connected to the the flow forward to you know the the ancestors who are the ones who are yet to come you know the ones seven generations ahead who god willing will be here when our culture reinvents itself and can we at the same time have an awareness of the you know what the dna is that's going into these seeds of light and how you know we're curating our you know this podcast that you run is one little seed of light um that's you know planting that dna for the future so can we be aware of all of those you know little places little seeds over the world that when we do our activism when we make our contribution we're doing it connected up with these million other seeds of light around the world and can we sort of as the last point in that can we can we really be aware that the future is not going to be born out of the past? You know, the future has elements of mystery in it that we're, you know, as yet unknown. That the, the, the configuration of the future is as, un as yet unknown to us with the state of consciousness. And when you were talking about quantum physics, it's like, you know, there are, there, there are all these seeds of human knowledge within that that we've barely begun to tap, you know, and that actually something there's something else waiting to happen and like can we place our trust and our hope in this in this as yet unknown future that we can hold a vision for and kind of carry in our hearts and that can be expressed through our relationships through our community through our activism through through the tears that we cry when we walk into this dying and see the you know the things that are happening around around us and through the connections that we have to other people and to the earth itself. So I think, you know, where you were going with that was just like bringing all of these things together. And I think we're just in this space where, you know, the future and the past, the kind of inner and the outer, the tiny and the vast are all connected and all one. And that's the place that we need to live from. 
Beautifully put. And Justine, where can listeners find more about your work? Uh, org. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure you'll have a stampede of people, hopefully, <laughs> heading to the site. But, but as we know from the quantum, it's not about the, the number, it's about the, the, the effects that we create and how things ripple out and, and the unexpected way systems can suddenly shift. And we, we almost have to move on from that kind of linear thinking, don't we, about numbers and size. It's, no, it's not about that. It's about the quality that we're bringing. And I I've really so felt, I've, I've felt, I've felt in that zone myself as we got talking, I really felt like we entered into that space together on this, in this last hour. Mm. And it's been a real a real privilege and an honor and a joy to, to, to have this time with you. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, and, likewise. And it's been well, great talking to you. I've loved it. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Well, we'll do it again. <laughs> See you soon. Thank you, yes, Justine. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening. The Matthew Green podcast was produced by me, Tarn Rogers-Johns, for Emerge. Emerge is a media platform and movement exploring the emerging new narratives of our time visit us at www.whatisemerging.com.